Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. Try not to be too distracted by the beautiful basketball court behind me. I'm really glad I don't have to look at it or I lose my place in my own message. As you know, last week uh, we began a short series on this topic of stewardship. And whenever we think about stewardship, most people associate that with generosity or management of resources, about giving something away. Uh, And really, the purpose of this whole series is to correct that whole perspective and to say that's not really what stewardship is about. But stewardship at its heart is about the acknowledgement that everything we believe is ours ultimately belongs to God. And that's actually a better arrangement for us because when we believe we own things, it distorts our relationship with those very things. It causes us to be limited in what our lives can mean rather than set free to have something much bigger happen. So I want to start this morning because our our message today is about the stewardship of time. And I want to start with just a simple question. I'm going to ask you to reflect on this. What sort of relationship do you have with time? And you can think about this in general. You can think about it in this season of your life. When you hear the word time, what are some of the the feelings and the thoughts you associate right away with time? Just think about that for a minute. You have too much? You have too little? Is it flying by? Is it just dragging on? Is time something to be grasped or something to endure? Is time your friend or does time feel like your enemy? You might want to just jot this down someplace if you're writing things. What is the strongest emotion or feeling you have when you hear the word time. I would say it's a safe statement that we Americans have a pretty unhealthy, dysfunctional relationship with time, generally speaking. We are either afraid of time, like it's just running away from us, or we don't have enough, or we don't value it enough, but we don't really have a very healthy relationship with time. I've shared this long time ago, but can you believe that American workers, we leave 768 million vacation days unused every year? That's paid days not to work. And together, we collectively leave 768 million of those days on the table, unspent. We tend to suffer from hurry sickness. Do you ever feel like this? Like you're always behind, you're always catching up, you're always in a rush, you hardly ever have time to just sit still and think or be? Over 40% of Americans report that they don't feel they have enough time to do everything they need to or want to in this life. And if the $330 billion anti-aging skincare industry is any indication, globally, We humans, I think most of this in South Korea, but we we humans spend $330 billion a year 
on creams to fight aging as if you can actually fight aging with an ointment. You can fight the appearance of aging, but you can't actually slow down aging. And if that's any indication, it's clear that we have this fear of death, this sense of scarcity when it comes to time, like it's running out and I'm losing that fight and it's panicking me. I'm sorry if that triggers something deep in you. I lived for years before becoming a Christian with this dread terror of death. Because it was so permanent. It was so unfair, so unpredictable. It told me that I can't even bank on how much time I have left in this life. Even God's word reminds us in multiple places that our time on earth is short and life is fleeting. Psalm 39.4, psalmist writes, Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. How true that statement. If you're under 30, you have no clue what this is talking about. But if you're over 30, you're already like, yeah, how did I get here? How is it already this far along? If you read verses like that, and they're scattered throughout the Bible, it'd be easy to assume that God's main agenda when it comes to time is it's not unlimited, it's running fast, so maximize your utility and your productivity, get as much done in the short time you have that you can. I want you to be useful to me. Go, 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 go. I picture that that officer standing outside the open window of a paratrooper plane, just pushing guys out, go, 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 go. And that's the way I thought for years God wants me to relate to time, is it's short, make the most of it, go, go, go. And some of that is true. Living diligently, living with purpose, having a sense of holy urgency does matter. But the stewarding of time is way, way more than managing it efficiently. The stewardship of time in Scripture, and according to our God, is a much deeper thing than that. The New Testament has two words for time. And this is a fascinating study. I got so lost in it this week. I'm only sharing the tip of the iceberg of what God was teaching me this week. And time is a fascinating concept in general, but especially in Scripture. In the New Testament, one of the words we find for time is chronos. That's kind of simple, right? Because that's where we get chronometer. Um, you know, chronos is pictured in Greek mythology as the very old dude, his father time. Chronos is clock time. It's the sense of time as a unit of measure in this physical universe that just keeps running and running. It's measured in seconds and minutes and hours and days and weeks and months and years. That's the kind of time we generally think of. And for us in the West, that's almost entirely the way we conceive of and relate to time, is time as a unit of measure, as a variable or a constant in something. It's just constantly there as that thing which runs inexorably on and on and on. And we measure our lives and define our lives by it. And the truth is we have no choice but to live in Kronos time. Unlike God and unlike the Terminator, we are bound on this journey in one track. We can't get off. Despite our fantasies about time travel, and how many of you fantasize about time travel? Like, if that were possible, I'm in. I don't care if it's risky. I'd be right there in front of line. And yet, in spite of that, that is a fantasy because we have no choice 
but to journey in one direction at one pace through time. And because of that, we arrange time, we think about it in terms of tenses. Past, present, and future. You're not, you're not in school, so please stay with me. I know you hate hearing the word tense. It's like grammar, but think about this. That's the entire way you and I think about time. There's the past time, there's the present time, and there's future time. And which of those tenses do you think we spend the most time dwelling on? Well, if my pastoral ministry is any indication to me, having spoken to so many hundreds of people over the years, I would say most of us dwell either in the past or in the future. That's the place where we entirely spend the majority of our lives is dwelling on the past or dwelling on the future. And the irony of that is that those are the two tenses that you cannot control at all. When you look back at the past, all you can do is remember it. The old glories, the old regrets, there's not a single thing you can do to change it, and yet some of us can't seem to escape it. It's as if it's quicksand that has got us, and we cannot break free of the past. We dwell on it, we replay it, we think about it all day long. It defines our lives, and then it confines our lives. And yet we have no control. And so Paul gives us beautiful advice, which I've read again and again at this church, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Paul is saying the past is full of things we wish we could change, but we cannot. And so we dare not remain stuck in the thing where we have no control, but we aim our hearts forward and we move on. This is good advice because a person who dwells and is stuck in the past cannot actually move forward in their life at all. Because every time they try to, memories and echoes stir up again and they think, oh, well, I'm not going to hope again. I'm not going to love again. I'm not going to trust again. I'm not going to X, Y, Z again because the past has taught me that nothing good ever happens. And when you dwell in the past, you can't really have a future because all you think about to understand life and reality is what already happened, not what is happening or what can happen. And then the other segment of us probably dwells way too much in the future. And and an obsession with the future takes two flavors. One is boasting about the future, which is a way of saying, not just boasting, but dreaming, planning, um, acting as if you really have control over what tomorrow will look like for you. I'm not saying it's wrong to plan. I'm not saying it's wrong to have ambition. I don't think God's word is saying that either. But there's a difference between working towards something and obsessing over, I have to make this happen. If this doesn't happen, everything's ruined. Uh, Life is over. It's not worth living. I have to get there. That desperate need to control the future outcomes of our lives or even to stake everything on it and say, this is what I live for. Proverbs 27.1 gives us a clear warning. Don't boast about tomorrow for you do not know what even a single day may bring. I think about how we, we imagine always future me is going to be so much better than present me or past me. And yet here's how uncontrollable the future is. Even though tomorrow when that situation comes up, I'm going to say like this, oh, when that situation comes up, I'm going to take it. I'm going to go. Even then I betray myself all the time, don't you? 
How many goals do you set for yourself where you say, man, tomorrow, I'm going to say yes to this once and for all. I'm going to get there. And then tomorrow, tomorrow you stabs today you in the back. Just because you idiot. Who would you think you were? You know we're idiots. You know we're lazy. You know we don't do this. And, and that's what happens over and over. I have no control even over tomorrow me. If I can't control tomorrow me, how do I control tomorrow? It's folly to look to the future as though you have any real control over what's coming. The other way some of us obsess over the future is by not just dreaming of what tomorrow will bring, but dreading what tomorrow will bring. Of worrying about it, fearing it, constantly thinking, I've got to do everything in my power to avoid what tomorrow might bring. That's just another way of obsessing over a thing I cannot control. You know, I used to really freak out when I watched pandemic movies. Now we've been living through one. uh, And I think it's God's grace to me that it hasn't been worse than it is because this was one of my most dreaded scenarios was an invisible bug starts to affect all of us and we're all done for. And it feels like there's so little you can do to control it. And I would lay there, partly because my training before ministry was in genetic engineering and epidemiology. I I used to think about this stuff, like, what if that really happens? What if that Jude Law movie about contagion actually happens? We're done! What good does it do to obsess over that possibility? Because if it happens, it happens. What is gained... By dwelling on it as though by thinking about it, being afraid of it, worrying about it, I can control it from not happening. Jesus himself says to us, firmly but gently, don't worry about tomorrow. Because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I think it's really interesting, providential, that we happen to be worshiping today at the now arena Because the central point I need to make is that in our distorted relationship with time, the most important tense that we have as Christ followers is now, the present. We are driven, of course, by promises of the future, a vision of the future, a kingdom that will be fulfilled and fully realized in the future. But we won't get there by looking way forward. We get there by looking immediately in front of us and saying, this now, the present tense, this moment I'm sitting in is my choice. It's the only moment I have any measure of control over at all. I can sit here and zone out. I can sit here and really fight to understand. I could whatever, right now in this very moment, you have some measure of control over you and what your life will be. And when this moment is passed, You will have what you decided, and you will have what you will decide in the next second. But the only moment of time any of us ever really has is the one we're in right now. So this is Kronos time. We have a complicated relationship with it. The only true element of Kronos time we actually have is the present, and that's the one we spend the least time engaging with. And instead, we look backwards or we look forward instead of looking straight at where we are. There's a second word in the New Testament for time, and that's kairos. How many of you have heard that word before? 
It's made its way into the secular world, the business world. Kairos is no longer just a biblical idea because it didn't start that way. It was a general idea in Greek philosophy. And it's this idea that it, it sees time not as a unit of measure, but as a unit of meaning. If Kronos time is measured in minutes, Kairos time is measured in moments. The same way you're saying, we're having a moment here. Something is happening right now where clock time has now been converted into something more significant. Clock time has become God time. It's become kingdom time. It has become relationship, family, love time. It is doing something here. We're no longer measuring this time in hours of duration, but we're measuring it in terms of what is actually happening in the real universe right now. What is God up to? What is changing? Kronos is about quantity, and Kairos is about quality of time. So there's really two kinds of Kairos time. Okay? One form of Kairos time is this idea, and this is, by the way, scholars will agree on this, Kairos is one of those weird Greek words where there's no exact correlate in any other language. It's one of those words that every language has them, where you have to put like pages of text together to try to explain what the native speakers all instinctively know. Oh yeah, that's what kairos is. It has a feeling about it, not just a meaning. And that's what is trying to be communicated here. One sense of kairos is a full engagement in the moment right now. That doesn't happen very much. Most of us experience the passage of time almost like we're on a tram from the parking lot at Disney World into the park. You know that dead time where you're just like... Uh... Or, you know, despite all the, the things to look at when you're waiting an hour and a half to ride a 13-second roller coaster, and you're just, mm. that's how most of us experience time. It's just, we sit there and we endure it, it passes, and we're, we're trying so desperate to look at our phones and distract ourselves from the fact that this is deadness here. I'm numb about this. I'm just sitting here waiting for another minute to pass, and it's making me insane. The honest people, the ones who are awake, get this. This is a horrible state of affairs. And so one form of kairos is to break free from that and go, right now, in this minute, stop mindlessly staring at the seat in front of you on the tram and look out at where you are. Look at the person sitting next to you in that tram. Attend to this moment. Be fully engaged, fully present, fully alive. We spend so little of our chronos time in this mode of kairos time. Most of us just get dragged along for the ride. Do you know how rare it is today to be still and silent and present, fully engaged in this moment right now? And yet that is the biblical definition of what it means to be fully alive. It's not that your heart is beating and air is coming in and brainwaves are going, but that you are actually here. Most of us live, but very few of us show up. We're not really here for so much of it. And that is one way to lose time, is to not show up for it, not be present in it, to just endure it as necessary evil. There are moments, however, when that changes, and we are so fully engaged and present in what we're doing, that Kronos time stands still. Sometimes it happens when we're creating something and we're in the flow. Sometimes it happens when we're so enjoying something that, have you ever come up for air? Do you know what I'm talking about? Where you were doing something that you enjoy so much and then you come up for air and you're like, oh, it's night already. Hours have passed. 
I was completely unaware of Kronos time passing because in this little brief stretch of time, I wasn't actually on the tram anymore getting pulled along. I was there. It's like you pull over on the shoulder of a gridlocked highway. You get out of your car and you go, what am I doing? I'm here. I'm breathing air. I'm on the earth. I'm looking at trees and hills that I drive past every day, and I'm seeing them. This is one beautiful expression of Kairos, is that we break free of Kronos time by being fully present in the moment we have right before us. And there's another sense of Kairos time, and this is maybe the more common usage, and that is of the right or perfect opportunity, the right moment for an action or a decision. In Greek mythology, and I don't really have a picture of this available because all of our descriptions of this Greek god and his appearance are based on ancient writings. But the ancient writings are so descriptive. Kairos itself is based on a Greek mythological figure. Kairos was the youngest son of the Greek god Zeus. And Kairos, the way he appeared, he was beautiful and he was swift. He was pictured with a very handsome face, a perfect body, and he was on his tiptoes on a sphere like this with winged feet. He moves quickly. And he had this giant lock of hair coming down, hanging from the front of his head. Okay, can you picture it? Just big, giant arm of hair coming down, and it was braided. And the idea was this. As he's running swiftly past you, he's very easy to grab when you see him coming. But once he's passed, the back of his head is bald. You can't grasp him. That was the whole idea of Kairos. It's that window of opportunity, that moment. When that thing that won't be available forever will have passed. And if you grab it when it's coming, you'll have it. But if you don't decide and act in that moment, it's gone. And try as you might in regret, you can't get it. It's gone. How many of you are haunted by moments like that? Where you just knew it. I should have. I, why didn't I? I had that one chance and, and I just let it go. And some of us, our whole lives are haunted by moments like that. What an incredible picture the Greeks had of a guy with a giant thing hair saying, you can so easily grab him now, but the minute he's past you, it's done. All you can think about is how easy it would have been to grab him just then. The idea, of course, is seize the Kairos moments now or forever they will be gone. This is not a distinctly Christian idea. This is a compelling idea in so much of secular culture and philosophy. How many of you watch Dead Poets Society? So you know where I'm going with that. Professor John Keating gathers his boys, has them look at the photographs of all the students in the years past, and he says, they're just like you, dreams and hopes. A lot of them, are all, and all of them now are fertilizing daffodils. They're dead, they're gone, their hopes went with them. Time is fleeting, boys, so he says, carpe diem. Seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. There's a reason people love that movie. And this is the line everyone remembers. If you like musicals, and this is one of the few musicals I liked, Alexander Hamilton says, I am not throwing away my shot. Mm. In the words of a modern philosopher, look, if you had one shot, 
One opportunity to seize everything you ever wanted. One moment, would you capture it or just let it slip? Man. And there's something so compelling about that view of life. It's kairos in Greek mythology. Will you grab it while it's there, or will it become your next regret in a long line of regrets and missed opportunities? But the problem is, if you stop there, we're not talking about stewardship at all. Because all three of those very inspiring statements seem to indicate that your life, your time is yours. So make the most of it. Grab hold of it. Take from this world and this life all the pleasure, all the accomplishment, all the success you can squeeze because that's what life is about. Everything you ever wanted. Eminem spoke to a generation, but I think he captures the spirit of this age so perfectly. Everything you ever wanted. As if if you got that, everything would be good. But ask anyone who ever got everything they wanted if that was enough. Stewardship of anything doesn't begin with how we maximize its utility, how we manage the resource. Stewardship at its heart, do you remember, was about our relationship with that thing and our understanding that none of it is really ours. That made sense with money. The money that you have, that you work for, that is yours, is still just the gift of God entrusted to you. And you will be accountable, as I will be, when we stand before God one day, to answer the question, what did you do, my servant, with what I entrusted to your care? At the heart of it is not a management struggle, but an ownership struggle. It's about how I relate to this limited resource. And if that's true of treasure, it is most certainly true of time. But if I could wager a guess, I would say, I would say that we are less willing to give up our time than our money. I know that's true of me. If I have to say which of these resources is more valuable to me, I will 100% say time. And so I would rather write a check than go because time to me is the most finite, limited resource. And if I believe that the time I have assigned to me on this earth is all mine, then that will drive the way I try to arrange those years and hours and weeks. It will completely drive the way I think about my relationship with time. So the Apostle Paul offers us something similar to Alexander Hamilton, to Eminem, to John Keating. But he says it this way. He says, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity. That word opportunity is kairos. And making the most is a very interesting word that says it speaks to redeeming to buying back something, to take it off the market, to no longer let it be spent anywhere else, but to reclaim it for whom it belongs. He says, make the most, reclaim, redeem God's proper ownership of every Kairos moment in your life because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, 
but understand what the Lord's will is. If we stop short of that last sentence, it wouldn't be a distinctly Christian verse. Anyone from any religion could say those first two sentences or that first long sentence. But it's that last sentence that links it firmly to the living God. It reminds us that even when it comes to time, making the most of it is not about maximizing my experience, but it's acknowledging that even these short, limited days I have here belong fully to him. And the best way to maximize that life is to discern what he gave it to me for. Because if I'm fighting the one who made me, if I'm fighting the one who provided all those things for me, and I'm not participating with his great plan for the world, then my desperate bid to make the most of my life will actually run against the one who controls all of that. And in my desperate attempt to make a good life, I will make an empty, meaningless life, even if it's comfortable, even if it's secure. It will be so fleeting and so meaningless in the, in the end. And so Paul admonishes us, be very wise how you live because every moment matters, every choice matters. When a Kairos moment comes running past you, grab that braid and don't let go, not because you want to make the most of your life, but because this life, these years belong to a God who loves you, saved you for a purpose. He's doing something on this earth. And you can grab hold of a better corner of the earth or you can join him in his great project of doing something grand to elevate his son Jesus, to make this world different, to reveal himself to a broken, hurting world and not just add to the pain and selfishness that already abounds. The Old Testament character Esther is a perfect living historical illustration of this. I wish I could tell the whole story, but I'll give you the Cliff Stokes version. That's the version a lot of us are used to from school, right? She became the queen of Persia by a grace of God rags to riches story because she was hot. The most beautiful girl in all the realm. And she went immediately to the top and became the queen. But she happened to be a Jew. And on the advice of her uncle, she never revealed to the king that she was a Jew. So he just thought she was one of them. And then this underhanded, high-ranking official who hated the Jews for personal reasons worked out an edict so that all the Jews would be put to death as an extermination project. And the king's like, whatever, I don't care. I don't get into the weeds of administration. If you, Haman, think that these people are a pest, get rid of them. So he signs the edict and is about to go in. And her uncle Mordecai says, you've got to do something. Of all the Jews in the realm... You're the one closest to the king. You can do something. Go to see him and beg for your people's lives. But here's the thing. When you approach the king of Persia uninvited, it was a capital offense. You could be killed right away. And the only way your life will be spared if you approach the king without permission is if he raises his golden scepter and points it at you and says, you may live. Even though she was the queen and his favorite woman, She was terrified because this really is a dangerous thing. It's all about the mood he's in. So she says back to her uncle, I would, but you have to understand, I could get killed doing this. And I love what her uncle says back to her. But who knows, Esther? 
that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this? What if the entire journey you've been on, which we've been celebrating as the best fortune, such good luck, look at where you used to live, look where you live now, look who you have access to, look at the clothing in your closet, how did this happen to you? And all the while they're celebrating their great fortune, and Uncle Mordecai says to her, what if all of that happening was only for this moment to be possible? What if everything you celebrate and enjoy in your life finds its ultimate meaning in one Kairos moment of decision and action that says this is why you were born, this is why you were placed where you were, doing what you're doing, with who you're doing it with. This is the whole explanation right here. And in this one moment, this one decision, you can validate your life or miss it entirely. What if? What if that was God's whole design for taking a pretty village girl from another race and making her the queen of an entire empire? Esther has a fitful night of sleep, huge decision to make, and in the night she reaches a fateful decision and she responds to her uncle, I'm going to do it, tell everyone who's a Jew to fast and pray, but I'm going to do it. And she famously says at the end of her decision, if I perish, I perish. I hope if it comes to that, that each of us will be able to say words like that. If it's cost me everything, so be it. This was the moment that will define my whole life story. And if I miss it, does it matter that I keep breathing? If my whole reason for being alive is missed, does it matter that heartbeats keep going and time keeps rolling if I missed the whole thing? What if a whole human human life, its meaning and significance is wrapped up in one moment of turning completely to God and saying, I belong to you. This is your life, not mine. If you are going to spend me, spend me, because I am not mine, I am yours. What if we gave God that as our proper response to what he's given to us. What would he do with your life and with my life? I think the reason we have so much angst and despair in the world today is because this is not the posture in which even religious people are living. We're trying so hard to maximize our good experience in this world, and yet this world is broken It's not supposed to produce perfect experiences, yet we still try. When Mordecai says, who knows, but you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. There's there's a word called the Septuagint, which was the Greek language translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And in that Greek translation, the word for time here is kairos. This moment, this decisive Life-defining moment. I need to wind down so we have some time to respond here, but I'm surprised that I've already quoted one musical because anyone who knows me well knows I really don't like musicals. Please don't ever buy me tickets to a musical as a gift. I will take that personally. And yet I'm finding that some of these musicals do well because the lyrics behind them are pretty powerful. One song in particular really caught my attention this week. 
It's a song you might recognize because it's one of those few musical numbers that actually went on to play on the radio stations and stuff. It's called 500, or it's called Seasons of Love. And here's what the lyrics say. I think this really interestingly captures the message I'm trying to bring here. 525,600 minutes. That's how many minutes in a year? 525,000 moments so dear. 525,600 minutes. How do you measure, measure a year? In daylights, in sunsets, in midnights, in cups of coffee, in inches, in miles, in laughter, in strife, in 525,600 minutes, how do you measure a year and a life? How about love? This song profoundly challenges us to consider how we measure time. And when you do it in something as dry and lifeless as 525,600 minutes in a year, where you measure time by the moments where you were able to break free from the relentless march of Kronos time and for a minute, maybe a half hour, just be so fully present, you lived while your heart was beating. You were here. You were fully alive in what God was doing right in front of you. Or maybe in those 525,600 minutes, One of them mattered supremely more than all the others because that was the minute where an opportunity, a decision, a moment was created by God in your life that would bring meaning to everything else that happened in all the minutes along the way. Close this way. When a resource is limited, scarcity drives our whole relationship with that resource. I make a healthy living But I consider money one of my limited resources. And because of that, my entire relationship to money most of the time is driven by what I can afford. I have an imagination way, way bigger than my bank account. I can tell, Jeannie can affirm this. If I had billions of dollars, I'd know how to use it, man. Trust me, you guys don't even have a clue. I would use that in style. And so because it's limited, the lack of it drives all the choices, all the values, all the goals I set. But when you take a limited resource and make it infinite, it changes completely the way a person relates to it. I thought about Jeff Bezos yesterday. The dude has $178 billion. He's 58 years old. If he lives to an average life expectancy of 76, he has to spend $19,000 a minute, every minute of every day, 24-7, to use up all his money before he dies. $19,000 a minute. At that point, we can say Jeff Bezos has infinite dollars. For all practical purposes, you can't spend $178 billion as a person. So now Jeff Bezos is somehow, because he has so much of it, he's freed from the very concept of money that all the rest of humanity is bound up in. He relates to money in an entirely different psychological way than you and I do because he no longer thinks, what can I afford? He thinks, what do I want to see happen? What experience, what moment do I want to create? What change in the world? And he can actually do it. With just a half of one of those $178 billion, he can buy every worldly possession in this church twice over. With just half of one of those billions. That's profound. At that point... 
the amount of money becomes utterly meaningless. And the significance of money, the potential of money becomes everything. And if that's true of treasure, I think the exact same thing is true of time. And we are part of a faith that promises us that when Jesus returns, we will not ever die, but we will live forever. We call it eternal perspective. This idea that one day, we will have endless days, endless minutes, infinity seconds. And when that day comes, it will be the death of Kronos time. Time itself will be rendered meaningless and we will no longer think in terms of minutes. We will only think in terms of moments. When you have an unending parade of seconds and years ahead of you, you no longer live driven by the urgency and scarcity and desperation of a short life. Then what will you think about? We perennially live like people who are on the second to last day of a dream vacation trying so hard to enjoy it, but so aware constantly that tomorrow it all ends. We got to go home to our lives. And so we desperately try to squeeze every last bit of that vacation while it's remaining. Is that the way we're going to live here on earth? Part of the reason he's deposited eternity in our hearts now is to give us a dress rehearsal in this life for what it will be like when one day we will stop counting the minutes and start paying attention to the moments that are right in front of us where we can do something that touches eternity. And if God will grab hold of our hearts, then an hour wasted in the world's eyes is an hour treasured in the kingdom. An hour where we touch eternity, where we impact a life, where we increase hope. It's a royal investment, not a royal waste of time. That's what, it ha that's what it does to us when we glimpse what eternity really is. This is what Kairos time does for us. And so to steward time is to recognize that I don't know how many minutes or years I'll have. But each of them could be precious if I acknowledge that they all belong to God. I don't have the right or the freedom to waste a minute of my life in numb disengagement or watching those life-shaping opportunities whiz past me. Sometimes the will of God, that Kairos moment, comes to you in one simple post on our Church Center app. On a little piece in the blurb on Friday announcements, and you read and go, yeah, swipe away. I know about it, whatever. It could be that. But what if the Holy Spirit arrests you in that moment and says, this is for you? I know you never in a million years would have thought about going to Rhode Island. But what if the Holy Spirit is stirring in you? This is going to be an invitation to something profound. What if cleaning someone's house makes you see God differently than you've seen him all your life? It happened for me. I needed to spend that hour doing that thing. I wouldn't have chosen it if I only thought about Kronos time. But it was a Kairos moment. And those moments are coming for you this week. Maybe this very day. They are invitations to freedom from the tram of time that invites us to turn everything off and sit there and write it out. Pause. Be present. Look around you.
When you see that dude with a lock of hair running past you, and God says, that one right there, this is your moment, grab it. Grab it. Because when it's past, it's done. It won't come back to you. May God truly convince each of us that every breath we draw belongs to him. Let's just respond to God for a minute here. And I'm going to lead us through a little bit of response time here, but for the first minute, just in the silence that remains after what you heard, invite God to speak just to you now. He's spoken to all of us, I hope. But let him speak now just to you. What does he want to say to you right now about your relationship with time? Let's listen. Do you know that the real value of time is not how much you can do with it, but how much you can see God in every minute? He never stops working. He's caring for the world. He's revealing himself. He never stops. We're not the ones who have to work slavishly. Our job is to look for God and join him. Sometimes just to sit and be present in what we're doing, who we're with. Stop rushing through life, trying to be productive and missing all of it. Is this the Kairos God is challenging you to? To be really alive in this moment, fully here. If you sense that, I'm going to ask you to pray a prayer of commitment and invitation. God, I tend to just sit on the tram. I numbly get dragged through life counting the minutes. I don't want that anymore. There's such despair in that feeling. I don't want to miss my life. I want to see you, savor you. I want to know what's real around me. Would you pray that right now if you sense that's the kairos which God wants to see bloom in your life? And are you one of those people that God is challenging you to stop being a regret collector? Stop watching the life-defining moments and invitations, those seemingly mundane moments that become something holy, life-changing. You don't always know from the package what that minute, that hour will turn into. Is God challenging you to stop collecting regrets and start seizing the Kairos moments that run in front of you all the time? It's not always easy to spot which moments are just a moment and which ones are from God. But if we open our hearts, He will begin to stir us. And sometimes you find yourself saying yes to something which you wouldn't have chosen and God says a big yes back to you. 
and he changes your life through that yes. Is God challenging you right now to stop collecting regrets and begin grabbing hold, no more being paralyzed by fear or self-interest or doubt or uncertainty, lies that you believe, insecurities, enough. As God puts those moments before you, will you trust Him and obey Him enough to reach out and just grab hold? Would you pray for that if that's you right now? Would you pray right now for that? Living God, we cry out to you. Set the people of our church free from the numbing bondage of Kronos time that just drags us along. We say no more. Make us fully alive, present not missing the moments of this precious life. God, teach us to be here truly. And when you send before us a second, a minute, an hour that weighs more than all the others, Holy Spirit, help us to know that's the moment to say yes to you, to grab hold and not let go. We might be afraid we might be uncertain, but teach us to respond to you, to reach out, to grab it. And in doing that, help us to find the life that you've called us to and join the kingdom you are building. Lord, we banish wasted lives at harvest. We ask you, God, to free us. Help us to be stewards the short time we have. Let our lives bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.